but can I ask you a question? Sure. Well, if I was to go up to your sister, what I mean is, if I was to go up to Mary Sue... Oh my Sue, God, are we in that episode? What? Oh, I don't believe this. What's the matter? But you want to ask her out tonight, right? And then you want to give her your school pin. Yeah. How do you know? Look, Skip, I don't think it's a real good time for that right now. A pair of 90s kids bring their modern sensibilities to a 50s sitcom world, creating chaos for everyone who lives there. Listen as special guest Mike Kahn joins us to discuss a very bossy DVD, what firefighter Dalmatians do, and an impressive feat in Nintendo Wii Bowling. It's the keenest as we find out if Pleasantville stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and you, you handsome devil, what's your name? Oh, I thank you. I don't know if you're speaking to me, because there is one other person here. But I'm James Brief, uh, joining you once again. And today, folks, we have a very special podcast guest, a return. But this gentleman here is the reason we have a podcast. Really? That is true, because... When I first arrived at Cornell, I was uh, moving into the dorm with my mom. Wait, you went to college with your mom? You moved in with your mom? Yes. And this nice young man offered to help move me in. And guess who it was, Al? I'm assuming it was the person sitting to my right. <laughs> That's right. Welcome back to the show, Mike Kahn. Welcome. Yay! Good to be here. You guys might remember uh, Mike. He was here for our PCU uh, podcast. That was a lot of fun. And uh, Mike was actually the guy that helped move me into my dorm. And then he, after moving me in, he invited me. He's like, oh, why don't you go over to the, the fraternity house? And, you know, you can uh, meet some of the guys. I, I, I did. One thing led to another. I wound up pledging with uh, this guy, Alan Noah. Wow. So the whole reason that I know this guy is your fault? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to hang out with you anymore. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. This is just part of our witty banter back and forth of friends that we do here. No. Yes. That's funny that you are the reason that we all know each other. Also, it is kind of funny to think about the fact that you were supposed to be here in March of 2020. We were going to have you on then, but something happened in March 2020. I don't remember exactly what it was, but uh, something about not hanging out with friends. A little too busy. Buying toilet paper. Buying bottled water. Exactly. You know, it took us a while, but we finally have you back here. It's great to see you again. And we're doing requests in the month of November. This was a movie that you requested, Pleasantville. So why did you want to come on to talk about Pleasantville, Mike? Originally, we were supposed to do Child's Play. And I watched Child's Play in February of 2020. And I liked Child's Play about as much in 2020 as I liked it in 1989. And I didn't want to watch it again. (laughs) So we were looking for other ideas and tossed around a few things. And it was actually my wife who suggested that. 
And I read the description of the movie, and it looked like fun, and I'd never seen it before. So figured, let's give it a whirl. Oh, so this is not a movie that's like a beloved classic that you have a special connection with. You watch it for the first time just now? Yeah, this is all about the wife. That might be the first time we've ever had a guest on that did that, right? I think so, yeah. Usually the guests request a movie that they have some like sentimental connection to. And this is great. I love that you that you wanted to watch a movie. You went in cold. That's great. I also went in cold. I had heard of Pleasantville, but I'd never seen it before. James, had you seen it? I saw it once before, like many years ago. So I vaguely remember the general premise of the film. Gotcha. Well, why don't you remind our listeners about the general premise of the film, James? All right. Uh, Pleasantville, it's a 1998 film that's about two teenage siblings, Jennifer and David, played by Reese Witherspoon and Tobey Maguire. Jennifer is shallow and promiscuous, and David is a loner, and one night they're pulled into their television set, leaving the real world of the 1990s, and they're transported into the 1950s black-and-white world of a TV show, Pleasantville. And everything in Pleasantville seems perfect there. Everyone's happy, the basketball team never loses, they never even miss a shot, and the fire department, they only rescue cats from trees. But Jennifer and David bring their modern sensibilities to the town, educating the residents of Pleasantville about books, the world, and a little bit about sex. Hubba hubba. We could all use a little bit of that. In Pleasantville especially. In the end, the town and its residents become colorized, and not everyone is happy about these changes. <gasps> Yeah, we'll find out how the town comes to grips with this. Interesting. Okay, so I don't really remember this movie coming out. I don't remember if it was a hit or not. This was a few years before uh, Tobey Maguire was Spider-Man, right? Yes, yes. Uh, Reese Witherspoon, you had seen her around in things. Uh, Tobey Maguire, I, I, I mean, we know what he was in before this film, right, Al? Can you name it? Um, the Cider House Rules? No, well, he was in the Cider House Rules, but let's just say he was a, a villain with no speaking lines. Oh, right, he was in The Wizard. That's right, he was one of the henchmen of uh, Lucas. Yeah, but band. he was just, like, in the background. Right, right, right. Do you know the other connection that this film has to The Wizard? No. Your childhood crush, Al. And your still current crush. Jenny Lewis? That's right, she was in this film. Who is she in Pleasantville? A random background character, but uh, Kristen. Oh, I did not know that. I mean, this movie came out in October 1998, October 23rd to be exact. It had a $60 million budget, and that's pretty high for the 90s. You could tell there's a lot of uh, a lot of computer graphics were needed for this film. And it opened uh, at number one with $8.8 .8 million, and it wound up uh, only making $50 million domestically. Made more money internationally, but this was not a smash hit. Gotcha. But yeah, I mean, I could imagine that the budget was high for all of the uh, the colorization and the black and white desaturization and resaturization that they did. It is impressive visually, for sure. Right. And you would think that this is a very expensive cast, but actually I think they got incredibly lucky or they had a fantastic casting director because they got top actors. But in 1998, I don't think demanded top dollars. You had people like a pre-Spider-Man Tobey Maguire, a pre-legally blonde Reese Witherspoon, William H. Macy. And right, William H. Macy was one of those guys you always saw pop around. Like he was one of those that guys. Uh, you have Jeff Daniels. You have appearances by Don Knotts, I, I don't imagine, was demanding $10 million for his cameo. A little past his prime. 
Right. Yeah, but you know, a great actor and great for these little roles. And I think it's very well cast, this film. Agree, agree. But I wanted to mention uh, in regards to the the color and like the saturation and everything. Did you guys happen to watch this movie on DVD? No, I no. think I watched it on what Showtime. was it streaming on? Showtime. Yeah, one of those streaming things. Oh, okay. I got it from my library on DVD. And when I first pushed play, there was a warning that popped up and it said, many TVs are not properly tuned to the right level of color. In parentheses, frequently this level is too high. High is underlined. Please use the following images to tune the proper flesh tone. And then it shows like stills that are in color so you can adjust your TV settings so it looks right. Which I guess I kind of understand because this movie so heavily relies on color and black and white and, you know, the the liveliness of certain colors. But I was a little like put off by that. Like, don't tell me what to do, DVD. You know, I'm not going to adjust my TV settings for you. What's a DVD? Exactly. I don't take orders from DVDs. But the movie shows you Pleasantville pretty quickly. It's a TV show within a movie. It's supposed to evoke Leave it to Beaver and I Love Lucy and I guess other sitcoms of that ilk of which I watched none. Right. The Waltons. Like this is an idealized uh, 1950s town where the parents slept in two separated twin beds. No sex of any kind. Guys and girls might go steady, but that means holding hands. Right. And, you know, this is supposed to take place in 1958, and the movie is in 1998, so 40 years earlier. And it's corny then. Like, the people in 1998 know that it's corny. Even the words that they're using, gee whiz, keen, swell, steady. It's almost like the movie is itself playing test of time a little bit. Yeah, that is a very good point. Like, it's making fun of something that was old and corny. Yeah. But the movie also kind of evokes something else, which shows up in about the first five seconds of the show Pleasantville, a show that probably actually makes me think about this movie more than anything else, a very short-lived show on Nick and Knight and ABC called Hi Honey, I'm Home. I do remember this show. I thought it was on like TGIF. It was Nick at Night. Yes. Okay. Do you remember this one, Al? No. What on earth are you talking about? It was almost the reverse of this movie where the 50s sitcom, the characters wind up getting dropped into the 1990s. Their show got canceled. They were out of reruns. And they just wind up going into the real world for a little while. And they're in black and white. And they use this little remote control-like device called the Turnerizer to turn into color to try and fit in a little bit better. Okay. No, I don't remember hearing about that at all. It was not very memorable, to say the least. It didn't last very long. No, it didn't. And uh, Mike and I have made references to this random sitcom before, which is the only reason I, I didn't think there was anyone else on the planet that had heard of this show. Did you watch it again? I only think I watched the first episode because I'm pretty positive it was on uh, TGIF, the first one. Because I remember a man comes on and I was intrigued by this intro. And he goes, in July 1969, humans walked on the moon. And then he said something else that happened in like the 80s. And he goes, and tonight, October 1996, the next most important thing in television history. I was like, what the hell is this? And it was the High Honey, Hi, I'm Home. Honey, I'm home. And I, I watched it. I remember thinking, it was a one-joke show. And, you know, the joke was funny, but then they repeated that joke 38 times. 
Gotcha. And that's why it lasted four episodes. Like, if you ever saw that 70s show, that was a show that was very popular, lasted like 10 seasons. It happened to be about the 70s. And they had that spinoff called That 80s Show, where every single joke was like, my legs are so warm. I wish they'd invent something that could warm my legs. Eh? Because we're the 80s? Yeah, that show only lasted like a couple episodes. They're rebooting that 70s show or they're doing a sequel, that 90s show. This one's going to be like a continuation with like uh, the parents from that 70s show are now going to be the grandparents. Hmm. But Pleasantville, you basically have these two feuding teenagers. They're they're teens of a, a single mother, and the mom's finally had some date nights. So she's going out, leaving the two teens alone. Jennifer, played by Reese Witherspoon, she is your very popular teen. She's got a lot of dates, and she's going out with a lot of boys. And then you have David, the nerdier the brother who's just sitting at home watching the equivalent of Nick and Night shows on what seems to be a Friday or Saturday night. And they're fighting over the television remote because she wants to watch, I don't know, some show, MTV or something. She wants to watch a, a concert. A concert on MTV. Yeah, okay, a concert on MTV. With the guy that's supposed to come over. But did MTV ever, like, air concerts? They did. Yes. I remember seeing a Green Day concert on MTV. It was rare. And I remember thinking, oh, this is cool. And wondering why they didn't do it more, probably because you can't really go to commercial break during a live concert. I mean, MTV is also one of those things that just doesn't stand the test of time, really, for music. Well, yeah. I mean, you don't need to watch MTV for music because now you can just pull any video up on YouTube whenever you want. What we used to do, like watching MTV for hours, hoping to see a music video you'd like. I mean, that doesn't make sense anymore. You're right. But uh, David and Jennifer, they're fighting over the remote control. They break it, and it's one of these televisions that really bother me, that have no way of turning them on or off or doing anything. You you can't manually turn it off even. Like, if you lose the remote and you don't have a universal remote, this TV is completely useless. Was that a thing? It is. I've totally seen this before. There's some TVs that still do it, and it's really annoying. It's a design flaw. Yeah, like when he says, oh, it's a new TV. It doesn't work without a remote. I was like, when were there ever TVs that didn't work without a remote? My new model TVs have like a little tiny button on the corner. I've seen ones that don't have one. It's very annoying. But uh, this one didn't. They have a knock on the door. And there's this old man, Don Knotts. I knew Don Knotts from one role and one role only when I saw this film. And that was Mr. Furley from, uh, what was that show called? A Three's Company. And he's a TV repairman. It used to be TV repairman because a television was a huge investment and also had replaceable parts. Today, they're just so cheap and no one's going to repair it. So you just uh, you know throw them out and get a new one. But this guy comes over and he just happens to show up at the exact right time and says, I've got just something for you. Oh, no, actually, he first talks to the kids for a little bit. Right. He's like quizzing them on like their knowledge of Pleasantville or David, really. And David passes the test. So he gives them this whatever remote and lightning strikes because, you know, ominousness is happening. They fight over the remote and they're sucked into the TV and we're 13 minutes into the movie. I appreciated that they didn't waste a lot of time on like the preamble and setting the stage. I assume the trailers were all about these kids in the black and white world and they get to it pretty quickly. Yeah, I think it's to its credit that it doesn't waste 30 minutes uh, trying to give us real characters in the beginning to juxtapose with their black and white life. No. Just get us there. We get it. They're modern teens. Well, that was the one thing, though, in trying to juxtapose it. They were really, really ham-handed. 
Maybe that was a theme throughout. But the twins fighting over the remote control juxtaposed with their TV counterparts doing the same at the exact same time. The mother juxtaposed against the Parker parents. That sort of thing. And we get it. But again, as James was saying, at least we didn't stay there for too long. I get what you're saying. I think it is not subtle. And I think that is a criticism you could make about this movie in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, it gets you right into this world where Jennifer doesn't want to eat a breakfast at all, or certainly not a big breakfast. And then the mom's like, no, eat this big, huge breakfast I made with pancakes and bacon and eggs and sausage and a ham. Like, they're not being subtle of this is very different. And I guess that makes sense because it's 40 years earlier and also not the real world of 1958, but a TV sitcom version of it. But it is beating you over the head with this is not like home. Yeah, I mean, the movie literally shows things in black and white versus color. I I don't think it's meant to be a, a very subtle reference. You don't need a thorough analysis to figure this one out. Right. And the rules of Pleasantville are sort of explained fairly quickly that everyone on the basketball team makes every shot. It doesn't matter if you aim at the wall, it's going to go in. There is no outside of Pleasantville. If you take Main Street and keep going, it will circle back. This is its own special magical world. But it did make me wonder like what some of the rules are of these kids in this TV world. And I think it's okay to not do too much heavy-handed exposition about where they are and if it's magic or is it, you know, some kind of wizard who's doing it. But like, where are the real kids from the TV show that they've replaced? Are these fictional characters or are these real people in this town that have their own agency and can make decisions. I was wondering about that. Are you just not supposed to think about that stuff? Correct. You are not supposed to think about that at all. This is a fairy tale and you are trying to figure out where these people went. I did not think of it. That's an interesting question, but not one that I think you need to know for this film at all. I get that it's a fairy tale. I agree with you. I think it is a parable in a lot of ways, but I do also think that If it's a TV show and these people aren't real within the context of the movie, then I don't really care about what happens to them. I care about what happens to David and Jennifer because they need to get back to their real world. I I got in my head. Al, I don't think that you're wrong entirely, though, because if if you think about it, the manager from the, the soda fountain, whose name is slipping my mind right now. Mr. Johnson, played by Jeff Daniels. Thank you. Um... He didn't know what to do other than scrub the top of the bar. He just did that again and again and was waiting for David to do his part. So I don't think that they really had agency. I don't think that they really knew how to think for themselves. And that was kind of what Jennifer and David started doing, which is giving them some direction, giving them certain cues. I don't think these are real people. I think they were transported into a musical box. These are not actual people or actors or anything. Like David and Jennifer, the the characters' names. Bud and Mary Sue. Bud and Mary Sue. They they don't exist. I mean, yes, there were actors that played them and on some lot in the 50s. But these characters are are fake. And and this actual thing they're zapped into is not replacing someone from the 50s. I I think this is way overthought, personally. I guess that's fair. I just wanted to know, like, a little bit. I didn't need, like, a ton of detail. I just wanted a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was just the equilibrium that existed before. And then 
Jennifer and David pop in and disturb that equilibrium. Right. And Jennifer really starts messing with the equilibrium when she goes on a date with Skip, who is like the captain of the basketball team, because she's supposed to. That's what she's supposed to do in the show. But she does something that's not from the show. What does she do? She has sex with Skip. And that's not a thing that happened in these 1950s sitcoms. And Skip doesn't know what's happening. He's like, oh, no, what's happening? I think I need to go to the doctor. And she's like, no, no, that's supposed to happen. His world has opened up. After Skip, who we should mention is played by uh, Paul Walker, another fantastic A-list actor. But, of course, at the time was just, you know, small roles and stuff. But I love when Jennifer says uh, in the diner, isn't he the keenest? Really? The keenest? No, Skip says to her, I thought you were the keenest. And she goes, really? The keenest? Yeah, that's a great line. And it's delivered in the, the great Reese Witherspoon way. But uh, David seems to like life in Pleasantville, but Jennifer doesn't. Well, I think as much as anything else, she's just pointing out that the other people in this world maybe aren't so happy with their regular routines. And that they do want more, but they don't know what more exists. Right, and I I find it interesting that what she thinks they need is basically, she just says, sex. And yes, it it can open up the uh, eyes of some of the townspeople, but it turns out maybe she needed a little bit more than just being more promiscuous. Yeah, because some people in the town have sex and then they go from black and white to color, but that's not what happens with her. And she says, like, I've had way more sex here than half of these people. How come I'm still in black and white? And she doesn't journey into color until later on in the movie. But there is still the connection with sex with the mom. Oh, my. Yeah. The mom is basically asking Jennifer slash Mary Sue what the kids do at Lover's Lane. She says, oh, well, they have sex. And the mom's like, oh, what sex? And again, like that kind of made me think, well, if she doesn't know what sex is, how is she a mom? And I know, I know, I'm overthinking. But basically, Mary Sue explains sex, explains masturbation. Betty, the mom, tries it out. And then the tree outside of the window catches on fire. And we'd already established earlier in the movie that the firefighters in this town don't put out fires because nothing burns. All they do is rescue cats out of trees. But now there's an actual fire that needs to be put out. And David had to show them how. I like when he goes to the fire department and he's like, fire, fire. And they're looking at him like he's a complete idiot. And then he just says, cat? And they all jump. Oh, okay. And they all get their fire gear and race on the pole and go rush to the burning tree, which they think has a cat. And they don't know what to do with their hoses. They don't know what to do with the fire. So David has to plug everything in. It would have been okay if they threw some line that he was a volunteer firefighter because Mike, uh, Al, like, would you know how to turn on a firefighter's hose if it's not just directly plug in here and turn this knob? Probably not. I mean, there's some kind of tool that you use to take the thing off the hose and to open it. And presumably the hose is going to twist on. But yeah, how to do it, it would probably take me an hour. I think I could figure it out. If there is a firefighter out there that would like to see Al just, oh yeah, what these guys do, I, I can figure it out. We, we invite you, please uh, contact us, testoftimepod.com, and, uh, and you can challenge Al to this. I feel like the Dalmatians do most of the work anyway, honestly. (laughs) Like, the firefighters are just there to, like, tell the Dalmatian that he's a very good boy. So good. Or a good girl. Or a good girl. But it wasn't just sex that was changing. You had Mr. Johnson who wanted to make different things. 
besides just burgers. He wanted to do different things beyond his Christmas decorations and do different tasks. And we're kind of seeing that theme throughout. Now, the the thing with Mr. Johnson, who is an artist, I felt like that was a little bit of like a weird left turn where he's just like the guy who's just scrubbing the counter until he's like scraping the polish or varnish off, whatever. And then he's like, oh, by the way, I'm also an artist. I just felt that was like a little bit out of left field. Well, especially also when, again, these characters, as characters before Dave and Jennifer got there, all were one-dimensional cogs just simply doing their part to move the show along. Right. I, I don't know if you guys uh, saw this recent film, uh, Free Guy. Basically, these characters seem to be NPCs, which are non-playing characters, which is basically while the show is taking place in the high school, the waiter and diner is just frozen. He kind of doesn't do anything or he just scrubs the counter. Like, it's just a, a robotic kind of world. So we see that. We see Margaret, who was supposed to be bringing the cookies to Whitey, instead wanting to give them to David and be with David instead of Whitey. Right. And the characters all started to develop agencies as a result of Jennifer's sex, sexual revolution. And it's not just sex. Um, they start introducing books to the kids, Huckleberry Finn and Catcher in the Rye. Uh, they're listening to the radio. And I thought that this was interesting because even the radio that they're listening to says, well, we got one of these new ones out there. I don't remember what exactly what song it was, but it was one of these a little more rock and roll kind of a, one of that new 1960s stuff that's coming. Right. And then we also start to see like the pushback to all of this change because some people like change and some people really, really hate change. And the most ardent opponent of the change is the town's mayor. And he really doesn't like all this stuff that's happening. He wants everything to be just the way it was. And he sort of recruits the dad, played by William H. Macy. And, you know, it's not that hard for him to recruit the dad because his wife is running off. He's coming home from work and dinner's not there on the table. He doesn't like any of this stuff that's happening. And it's easy for the mayor to kind of bring him into his little group. I did want to point out that when the mayor is like talking to some of the other dads, they're at this bowling alley. And there's like kind of a joke in like the background where you can see like all of the scores and most of them are like perfect scores. They're all bowling, like amazing games. They're all spares or strikes, every single frame. They're all on pace to get 270, I read on IMDb. Yes, and that's crazy. But before that, you see in what looks like one continuous shot, three 7-10 splits in a row. Yes. Like, that was blowing my mind just in the fact that, like, they had to do that. They had to, like, get one 7-10 split, another 7-10 split, and another 7-10 split. I did that once on the Wii. No, really? Even on the Wii, that's impressive. It was stunning. I was like, this is not real, but I guess this is why it's the Wii and not the real life. (laughs) I did actually want to bring up something since you were talking about George coming home and there being no dinner for him and the other men starting to realize some of these same changes. This inspired me to go look at that old article from Good Housekeeping magazine from 1955. Al, I don't know if you'd ever seen this before. No. James, I was showing you this a little bit earlier. The Good Wife's Guide. And this is what the men's expectations were for the woman to have dinner ready when he comes home. Take 15 minutes to rest or you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup and put a ribbon in your hair. Make the evening his. Never complain if he comes home late. Don't complain if he stays out all night. Don't ask him questions about his actions, and you have no right to question him. 
This is an actual real article from Good Housekeeping. Oh, like you printed it out. Nineteen fifty-five. Well, first off, you win the award for like showing up to the podcast prepared with a printout. That's amazing. Second of all, I'm like really tempted to take this home and put it up on the fridge um, <laughs> and then immediately get divorced. But this is like really incredible. It's insane that this was printed in a magazine in 1955. But is it though? Is it really shocking to you that someone in 1952 or whatever wrote an article that says to be a proper housewife, have the dinner home, don't argue with your man because he's had a hard day? It doesn't shock me. You know, that's a fair point, James. I guess it's a question of what was life really like in 1955 and 1958? The sitcom version of it, the Pleasantville version of it, isn't real because Of course, people in 1958 were having sex and they knew what fires were. Yeah, and they were probably beating their wives so much more because spousal rape was not a crime. Like these domestic violence, it was called wife beating. And like, oh, that guy down the street, he's a wife beater. Unfortunately, I think the word we're looking for is it's sad that this article existed and was probably, you know, used unironically pinned on the refrigerator. Remind the wife, you know, you have the dinner home for me, but sometimes you're arguing with me when I get home. Subtitles, things that don't stand the test of time. Yeah, but I think that that nostalgia for the quote-unquote good old days, I think that sort of theme is really relevant now, you know, after Trump was Make saying— America great again. Exactly, and that was what Reagan was saying back in the 80s. That was the interesting thing. There were two lines that stood out in Big Bob's speech. Big Bob being the mayor. Yes, Values that make this place great. What's the first thing you think of? I wrote that down. Of course, that sounded very Trumpian. And the other one, a time has come to make a decision. A time for choosing. Ronald Reagan, 1968, I think. Speech he gave at the Republican National Convention, if I remember right. And, you know, the interesting thing is that these people are aware. In some fashion, they are aware that they live in a grayscale, perhaps idealized world. Because when all these older people are complaining that there's all this color and, wow, these teenagers, blah, rabble, 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 there's one guy that says, this woman, she was wearing a red dress. No, 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 like real red. So that line to me was very intriguing because they know what red is, but they're in grayscale. So how could that exist? And I, I just think that it's fascinating. In some way, they, they were able to instantly know, oh, well, that's real red. Jumping ahead a little bit, but when there's a trial and they're accusing Mr. Johnson of using all the paint colors, it's not just even red, green, yellow. They have like chartreuse and like all of these colors. They have the words for them. But why would they have those words if they only see in black and white? The whole thing with the mayor is that he wants everything to be the way it was and he doesn't like change. And those themes are still really relevant. And I think they do stand the test of time because there is always going to be resistance to change, whether it's that new rock and roll music or people having sex or women who want to work and not make dinner or women who want to be with women. Exactly. Right. Gay people getting married, uh, trans kids using whatever bathroom they want, like whatever is the new thing, there is going to be some resistance to it because there are people who just think change is bad. And speaking of things that were different, did you notice something else about the entire cast in the Citizen Read of Pleasantville? What, that they're all very, very white? That would be it. 
Yeah. Was there a single person of, co- a person of color? <laughs> well, in a, depends how you use that phrase. No is the answer to your question. There is no, what we define as a person of color, like a black person, Hispanic, whatever. No, there are none. And then in the movie, when they start saying, look at you with your colored girlfriend, and they start hanging up signs that say no coloreds, they're talking about people who have gone from grayscale to technicolor but of course we read it as you know an allegory for civil rights and that's interesting but it is also like yeah but there's not a single black person or person of color in this entire movie even like in the beginning you know like in the 13 minutes before they go back in time to pleasantville maybe there's like a black extra in the school scene somewhere but None that is a character that has any lines. There are towns like that for sure, but the one thing I will say as a bit of a criticism, again, is the movie was not subtle about this point. Well, it's not that it's not subtle, but it's also just not clear about what is its point. Like, is the movie saying that racism is bad, or is it just saying that any kind of fear is bad? I think it's the latter. Yeah. That being said... What would you do with the black people in this film? This is 1950. This is pre-civil rights. And they show that there's a Pleasantville in like every state in America. So they don't specifically say if there's a northern town or a southern town. Like there are no black people in a segregated school if this is below the Mason-Dixon line. There are also no black people on TV. Right? Unless they're in like a servant, uh, Hattie McDaniel, you know, yes. she's a servant. And you don't see Sidney Poitier in, in the heat of the night until the 60s. And that's a huge deal. And then you don't see that a lot for many years. So that must have been a discussion. My guess is I think they kind of just, they went with this coloreds thing, meaning actual color, to kind of hammer on the head. I guess, but I also feel like then if you're not going to have any black people in the town of Pleasantville, then maybe David should say something like that of like, hey, how come there are no black people in this town? Or maybe he should have a black friend in 1998 before he goes back into the TV world. And, you know, he says, I miss my friend or something. They could have done something. I think think if this movie were made in 2021, that likely would have happened. Right. But everything comes to a head at this trial scene because Mr. Johnson and David, they paint a big colorful mural and it violates all of the rules and they're arrested and thrown in jail and the mayor wants to convict them for whatever crimes and what David's able to do is he's able to rile up the mayor and get him to be really angry and then he goes from black and white to color. So everyone is capable of going from black and white to color. His dad, he makes him feel sad about how much he misses his wife. And then he cries. And then he he goes from grayscale to technicolor. And that climax is really what the movie's been building towards. That it's not just this weird aberration. Everyone is going to go from black and white to color. And the interesting question that George asked was, can we go back? Right. And you you can't. George is William H. Macy's character, the dad. He says something about like, well, everything has changed. And David says, yeah, sometimes people do change. And George says, well, can they change back? And David says, well, that's harder. And yeah, I think that really does kind of encapsulate some of the themes of the movie that some people want to change and move forward. And some people really, really don't and just want to change back. 
And as you see with the mayor character in this movie, and we see in real life, a lot of times those people are politicians who are in charge of making policies and they want to do things that will make things go back to this idealized past. Which we're seeing really wasn't so ideal in the first place. Exactly. But after the whole town is Technicolor, David wants to go home, but Jennifer doesn't. She wants to stay in this world. And then again, I'm overanalyzing and overthinking. I'm like, how could she stay in this world when it's just a TV show? Like now there's a college and is it some other show? I know, I know, I'm overthinking. This part I definitely remembered from the first time I watched this film. And this would only be the second time I've seen it. But I do remember thinking because David decides to go back to the real world and Jennifer decides she's going to stay because she's like, I'm kind of a fuck up out there and I'm not going to go to college out there. It's implied probably she's, you know, a very poor student and was more interested in, you know, hanging out with her friends. But here she actually does the opposite and learns that, you know, she can have sex. That's fine. But, you know, that's not what's stimulating her. It turns out she actually wants to do something. So she stays in Pleasantville. But I was wondering the same thing. How do you explain? Explain this to the mom where your daughter is and and David says he's gonna visit her from time to time but maybe a line time doesn't exist the same time here or like no real time passes in the outside world uh, something like that that would have helped things well they kind of give you that in the end actually where he's watched an hour of the show and then he's talking to his mom after all this stuff has happened from beginning to end. That's a very good point because they've been in Pleasantville for weeks, uh, if not longer. And it's only been like an episode of Pleasantville has passed in the real world. So, yeah, good point. And what you were saying about Jennifer learning to love studying and to be a studious person, that's when she changes from black and white to color, when she discovers that about herself. It's not just about sex. It's about repression. And, you know, for a lot of the people, they were sexually repressed and that's when they turned color. But for Jennifer, it was about allowing herself to be a thoughtful person and read a book. For David, it's about when he punches the kid who's threatening Betty, the mom, that's when he like grows a pair and is able to stand up for himself and stand up for someone he cares about. That's when he becomes colorized. So that's really the thing. The sex is basically just kind of like a red herring part in the pun of the color, but you get it. And I think explaining a little more of the, uh, how does she go to college now? I thought there was only Pleasantville. There is a part where, I guess not just do the people expand their minds, but that the entire town colorizes itself. And actually there's a part where a sign pops up that says Springfield, 12 miles. Yeah. And I like that they call it Springfield because like Pleasantville, every state has a Springfield. So right. it still doesn't tell you where this is. Right. So we've come to the end of the movie. Mike, you are our very special guest. So you get to answer the question first. Does Pleasantville stand the test of time? That's an interesting question, and there's a couple reasons why. What's standing the time? Is the Pleasantville world of the 1950s standing the time? Is what was in the 90s standing the test of time? Or were the general themes standing the test of time? If we're going to look to the themes of standing the test of time, because the 50s is obviously more of a period, then I think it does. Because what we're kind of seeing is you've got these regressive types like Big Bob, and some of their rules that they that they wanted to impose. Limiting music to Johnny Matheson and Perry Como. No sale of umbrellas because of the preparation for inclement weather. Well, that seems familiar. No color paint. Dictating the history to be taught. Interesting as well for reasons that still show up in present day. Oh, yeah. 
wanting to close the library and close off Lover's Lane. Again, things that we see today. And some of the things that Big Bob talked about, the way that the characters grow and realize that some of the things that they thought were important might not have been or that there might have been a world well beyond that. I think that if the movie were made again today, there would definitely be some differences. But I think by and large, yeah, it stands the test of time. The things that don't stand the test of time, they pretty much say they don't stand the test of time one way or another. I think we could have done without the ham-handedness of some of the cues like Margaret giving David the apple. That was obviously a very clear reference. Even the courthouse is actually a clear reference. That was a take on To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. So there were a lot of things that we'd seen before. There's a little Back to the Future in there, too, I felt like, with the introduction of the music. But generally speaking, thematically, yeah, I would say it stands the test of time. James, why don't you uh, tell us your thoughts? Um, You know, like I said, I hadn't seen this film in uh, 20 years. There's a lot that I did not remember from this film. The general premise, of course, you know, I remember the kids going into a black and white film and coming out. But I think that this film is different than it was when I saw this, let's say, yeah, yeah, 2002 or something. I think you know, something that, uh, that, Mike, that you pick up on here is that you are seeing this more. Like when there's people saying, we're not going to sell umbrellas because we don't want rain. Um, umbrellas don't prevent rain, but they, they're more like, ah, nah, nah, nah. if I don't see it, if we don't see umbrellas, then there won't possibly be rain. And, you know, it's like, if I don't even uh, acknowledge that masks exist, I don't need, co- it's all this, like, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. I don't know anyone with this, so it doesn't exist. You definitely see these 1950s people are 2021 people in a lot of ways. It's sad that obviously slight different things, but uh, they still have the same. I have my way of thinking and there's no way of changing things. So I think that definitely does hold up. Um, There's a couple of interesting questions you pose on the movie, Al, about answering, uh, you know, questions about the science of the film and really explaining it. And like I said before, I don't think you need answers. That being said, it would be nice to throw a couple lines in there, Alan. You bring up a couple good points that, no, I have no need to know where the characters of Bud and uh, Mary Sue went when, when the kids come in. But I would like to know, how does Jennifer stay in here for so long? Um, I'm not a Fiona Apple fan. I, I mean, I only know that one song, Criminal. But this is the only other song I know by her, is the Across the Universe cover at the end of the film. And I think it's a fantastic cover. I agree with you that it's a great cover, but I also do think Across the Universe is just such a beautiful song that, like, there's no bad covers of it. Like, it's been covered a million times, and it always sounds great. I don't mean to disrespect Fiona Apple's cover. And her latest album was very good, by the way. Worth a listen, if you're interested. Mm. Yeah, it's a good cover. Um, I I do want to pull this up. This uh, came out last September. The Oscars, the Academy Awards, have a new criteria. At least one lead or significant supporting actor has to be from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group or at least 30% of the cast in a secondary and minor roles need to be from two underrepresented groups 
or a main storyline or subject that centers on an underrepresented identity group. So uh, yeah, the Academy Awards are, are trying to make a, you know an effort to have more inclusion. And I don't think you can make a, a film exactly like this today. I think you're right, Al. They probably would put more characters. The Don Knotts character would probably be a, a person of color. Uh, but you know, I was wondering if it was going to be a very deep film, uh, more than I uh, remembered it. And there's a couple of shots, including the last shot. I'm not quite sure I understand the final shot of the film. Um, but... I find the film, it's a little simple, but that's fine. The uh, theme that they're trying to hit you over the head with, it's a good theme. This cast is so good. The special effects, I also want to say, it's beautiful, the color in black and white. So I'm going to say that overall, while it has its flaws, I would fix a couple things. Uh, This film, as it stands, does stand the test of time. Well, that leaves uh, two people saying yes to it. Al, does this film stand the test of time? Well, I think that there are things about the movie that really do stand the test of time. All of the things that we were talking about, about people who hate change and want to go back to the way things used to be in the good old days, that is very, very prevalent today. And that is what this movie was commenting on in 1998. And those things are still relevant. I think my biggest problem with the movie is that it is both very broad and very narrow at the same time, which I realize is a contradiction, and I realize maybe it doesn't make any sense. But I think that the movie is sort of speaking about all repression. All repression is bad. The thing you mentioned, Mike, about when the girlfriend gives David the forbidden fruit and hands it to him, that's not subtle, right? Like that's very clearly the allegory that they're going for. These are characters in the Garden of Eden. Will they taste the forbidden fruit? Will they get the knowledge and then be corrupted? And the movie is saying, yes, that is a good thing. And that's fine. Like I'm I'm fine with that as a um, point of view. Also, there's the burning bush and like the flood allegories, like some of the religious stuff. Oh shit, that's what that was. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Not very subtle. And I, I think that... In a way, the fact that the movie isn't just about racism is bad or homophobia is bad or whatever thing is bad in that it's about all kinds of repression is bad. I think that's good from a test of time perspective because then it sort of works for whatever the issue of the day is. I think, though, the problem with that is that they did decide to go with no colors allowed, which has a very specific meaning and relates to a very specific thing. And that thing is racism. And the movie doesn't talk about race in any real way at all. And it feels like a glaring omission. You know, like it's hard to not see that. So I think I was kind of struggling with this movie in terms of like, what is it saying? What is the point? I think for the movie to really sort of work, you do need to think about it. And James, you were kind of criticizing me for overthinking things. And that's fine. And that's valid. And I won't argue with you about it because one, that's just what I do. But I also think that in a way... That's sort of like a strength of the movie that like it made me think about it after it was over. I was like, yeah, but how is she going to stay and go to college there? You know, and like what happened to the real Mary Sue? Like, I think 
in a way, even though I'm complaining about it, I think it's cool that this movie sort of posed those questions that I was thinking about a day or two later. So overall, I think the movie is not perfect. And I think they could have done some things more subtly. And I think there are some things that they actually could have been a little bit more clear on what they were trying to say. Still though, I'm gonna say that Pleasantville does stand the test of time because of just the world we live in where, Mike, you you mentioned this before, like schools are gonna teach the non-changist version of history, emphasizing continuity. That's like the whole critical race theory debate that like people are having in school boards now. Like these same issues are coming up now. So I think unfortunately, a lot of this stuff does stand the test of time. And I will say that the movie itself does stand the test of time. Good choice, Mike. I'm glad you picked this movie. It was a fun movie. It's a shame we didn't get to hang out in uh, March of 2020 as, as planned. But maybe not a shame that we didn't get to talk about Chucky. Fair point. Mike, I'm really glad you came back on. It was great having you on the show again. We'll do it again sometime. It's always good seeing you. In the words of Giordani Valdespin, I am the man right now. Who? Giordani Valdespin. You're a Mets fan. Sure. Yeah, (laughs) great. Okay, fine. Make Make me look like a bad Mets fan. Do you have another movie in mind? I think we've talked about a couple. Okay. So we got some plans. And what do you guys have up next? Well, I'm very glad you asked that, Mike. Next week, we are going to be talking about The Iron Giant with special guest Matt from Season 14, Time for a Podcast. That's a movie that he requested to come on to talk about. I've never seen The Iron Giant. I've heard of it. I know of it, but I've never seen the movie. So I'm excited to watch that one. I'm excited to see your reaction to it. (laughs) Oh, no. Now I'm scared. Is it terrible? Just watch it. But now I can't unhear what you just said. All right, I will try my best to go in with an open mind. Not for you, James, but for Matt, because he asked to watch that movie and talk about it with us. So until then, as always, we are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow us, talk to us, let us know your thoughts on Pleasantville, on 1950s TV shows, on what 1950s TV show you'd want to get sucked into, if any. On things that are keen and swell. Right, exactly. It will be swell if you talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we'll see you next week, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.